Good morning. morning. Let's go ahead and begin with prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the uh, opportunity to come and study. Uh, We have members that are are out today because of illness and sickness, and we ask that your healing hand would be upon them and uh, minister to them and their family. We have others who are struggling with uh, loneliness and concern for family members. Uh, We pray that you will minister to them in accordance with your will. Be with us as we study today that uh, our minds will be enlightened. We want to know the truth about how your kingdom operates, and we can participate and experience your healing in our lives. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number 11 in our uh, quarterly First and Second Thessalonians, and the title this week is entitled um, Promises to the Persecuted. Promises to the Persecuted. Um, <clears throat> when you hear the title, what comes to mind? Promise, if you're persecuted and you think promises to the persecuted, promises from God to the persecuted, what's the first thought that comes to your mind? You're being persecuted and you've got a promise from God. What, what are you thinking? He'll take care of me. So, so the word that came to my mind, first thing I thought when I read the lesson was deliverance. Deliverance from, uh, take care of me. Deliverance from persecution, right? Is that what you came to your mind? Is that what you got when you read the lesson? No, no. When we read the lesson, notice that, that the promises don't, don't necessarily sound like deliverance. They sound like something else in here. It's interesting. Um, <clears throat> somebody read for us the 2 Thessalonians 1. One and two, which you can find at the top of Sunday's lesson. Paul and Silvanius and Timotheus, under the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the first paragraph below says, Paul, as he often, uh, as he does so often, talks about grace and peace. In one sense, are they not related? Shouldn't the realization of God's grace, the promise of forgiveness in Jesus, lead to peace in our lives? How crucial that no matter our circumstances, we all take time to dwell on the wonderful provision of salvation made for us and the grace it offers regardless of our unworthiness. What better way to experience the peace that we are promised? We need to keep the focus off ourselves and on Jesus and what we have been given in him. So questions. First question, is there a limit to God's grace? No. So you already answered, now does it say it another way? Then if there's not a limit, does God ever stop being gracious? No. Keep that in mind when you think about certain scenarios that are painted at the end of time and how God deals with the wicked and some of those things. Uh, you just said he never stops being gracious. Keep that in mind. Um, one of the... Uh, what is the traditional Christian definition for grace? Can anybody give me a definition that's common in Christianity? Unmerited You guys all know that. Look, at it just chimed right out. And in fact, in the book, The Cross of Christ by George Knight, which some people have used as a, a critique of what we teach, um, it says the following. The basis of God's justice is what Paul called grace. The simplest definition of grace is unmerited favor. In other words, grace means that people receive what they do not deserve. Unmerited favor. Have you heard that, that definition? Yeah. Now think with me. Think it through. Unmerited favor. If God's favor is based on grace, and grace is unmerited favor, why do traditional theologies teach that we are to claim the merits of Christ when we approach God? If his favor is unmerited. 
or that we are to present Christ's merits in our behalf if his favor is not merited. Yeah, Is grace in the traditional view actually, should it be stated this way, grace is actually Christ's merited favor? Does the traditional view present Christ's merits to the Father in our behalf to achieve avoidance of the Father's wrath or mercy or salvation from the Father? And if we present it that way, do we undermine the concept of grace? Does Christ have to earn favor or grace from the Father for us? No. Hmm, well, here's uh, some more quotes from the book, The Cross of Christ, and tell me what you all think. Um, page 74, and then 64, and then page um, 107. Paul always speaks of people being reconciled to God. He never refers to God being reconciled to us. Absolutely true. The Bible never speaks of God needing to be reconciled or changed or transformed or won over to us. We're always, the Bible always speaks of us needing to be changed or won over or reconciled back to God. They're exactly right on that. Listen to the next words. In spite of that fact. Now, now what does that phrase mean, in spite of that fact? It means, well, irrespective of what the Bible says, in spite of that fact, so they're going to say, well, this is what the Bible says, but let's put the Bible aside for a moment because we know the Bible really isn't right on this issue. That's what they're saying. In spite of that fact, however, we should recognize that sin affected both sides. Humanity's rebellion and sense of guilt alienated it from God while God was separated from humankind by his necessary hatred of and judgment on sin, his wrath. Christ's sacrificial death propitiation removed the barrier to reconciliation from God's side. Did you hear that? Where's the problem according to this? When man sinned, God got mad and God's got a problem and Christ needs to die to fix God. Let's go to the next quote, same book. Leon Morris writes that if God's wrath is regarded as a very real factor so that the sinner is exposed to its severity, then the removal of the wrath will be an important part of our understanding of salvation. In other words, God's wrath must be propitiated or turned away from the sinner. That was one aim of Christ's self-sacrifice on the cross. What was he doing? Aiming his intentions at God. Okay? And then this is the third one. This is the third one. Um, <clears throat> thus Revelation 19 and 20 represent Armageddon as having two significant engagements, one at the beginning of the millennium, the other at the end of the millennium. The second Armageddon engagement finds God executing his ultimate wrath, not only on Satan, but on those sinners who have refused to accept, one, his principles into their lives, and two, Christ's vicarious, sacrificial propitiation, the basis of grace that turned aside the divine wrath, judgment on sin. So I ask the question, in traditional views, is grace really not unmerited, but it's Christ merited. Christ does something to achieve something from the Father, to turn aside his wrath, to fix him in some way, and now the Father is able to be forgiving and gracious. So when they put this idea out there that it's unmerited, it's not. It's merited by Christ. Christ merits it for us. Do you believe this, what I've read? Or does the Bible actually teach something contrary to everything I just read? They teach us something like this. Have you ever heard passages like this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare a son but gave him up, how will we not along with him give us all things? Or God was in the son. 
reconciling the world to himself. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. I mean, if you read scripture, you don't find these constructs of a wrathful God needing to experience merit from his son. Yes, way in the back. Wait, 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 it's from online. Did they tell you where they're from? Yeah, and he doesn't say. The name is Eugene Kershaw, and he says God's grace is his character. Unmerited favor is the way we get God's grace. It is not the definition of grace. So God is gracious. Period. He didn't have to be. And, and his sending Christ was an expression of grace rather than Christ meriting grace from the Father. Do you see the difference? Yeah. You could say grace is love and action. Yeah, that's right. Grace is his love and action. I like that too. Yes. Webster says in his dictionary, grace is divine assistance to live the Christ-like life. I like that too. Grace is God's power, work, action, effort to heal and restore us. Yeah. Um, this is an article, and, I, and, and I've just read to you what is an official position of modern Christianity, including our church today. That, that book that I just quoted from was published by the Review. Okay? And it's standard fare for any Christian church that would just be square down the line. Let me share with you something that has a little historic perspective. See, see what, our, what our church taught a, a hundred years ago. And see if there's been a shift in perspective in the last hundred years. This was out of an article in uh, an article, December 15, 1914, 1914, written by Ellen White, one of the founders of the church. And see the perspective shift. And by the way, this was written less than a year before her death. It says, the law of love is the foundation of God's government. And the service of love, the only service acceptable to heaven. Pause. Why is the service of love? The only service acceptable to heaven. Foundation of his kingdom. What else? That's still a little abstract to me. His character is still a little abstract to me. Make it a little more real. You're not wrong. You're right. Just make it a little more real. What? The law of the universe is built to act upon. The law that the universe is built to act upon. If I were to say to you, and it says the, the service of love is the only service acceptable to heaven. If I were to say to you, breathing is the only action acceptable to living. Well, would you say, well, because you know, there's a law that says you have to breathe. No, you would say, life was built to operate with breathing. And if you don't, if you don't breathe, you're going to die. Okay? And so you're all right. But the point is, God's law is the law upon which life is built to operate. And when you break it, life doesn't exist. So this is why it says the service of love is the only service that's acceptable because that's the only way life can exist. God has granted freedom of will to all, endowed men with capacity to appreciate his character and therefore with ability to love him and to choose his service. So long as created beings worshiped God, they were in harmony throughout the universe. While love to God was supreme, love to others abounded. And there was no transgression of the law, which is the transcript of God's character. Did somebody say that a minute ago? No, it's right there. Where, so next question about this. This law, which is the template upon which life is built, we call the law of love, the principle of beneficence, the principle of giving. Um, where, where does it originate? If it's a transcript of his character, is there a point in time when it did not exist? Notice, it cannot be created or enacted because it is an expression of God and God is eternal. Yeah, so it's always there. Um, <clears throat> and does it make sense to you that the God who is loved when he created would build or construct his universe to operate in harmony with his own nature? Does that make sense? Yeah. 
And that's what we're talking about here. The laws, the construction protocols that emanate from his very heart and character, and he built his universe to operate in harmony with that. But known unto God are all his works, and from eternal ages the covenant of grace, unmerited favor, existed in the mind of God. It is called the everlasting covenant, for the plan of salvation was not conceived after the the fall of man, but was that which was, quote from Romans, kept in silence through times eternal, but now is manifest, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandments of the eternal God, is made known unto all the nations unto obedience of faith. That's Romans 16, 24 and 25. In other words, it was kept hidden until the time it was revealed through the prophets and through Christ's work. The purpose and plan of grace existed from all eternity. Now the question. It existed from all eternity. The purpose and plan, all eternity. Why? What does that mean? What does it imply to you? What do you hear when you... The basis of his character. It's the basis of his character. Does it sound like an eternal gospel in the first angel's message? An angel came with an eternal gospel? An everlasting gospel? An eternal gospel? See, a lot of people, when you say, what's the gospel? They'll say... Well, Christ died to pay my sins so I can have eternal life. Well, that was not eternally true. That was only true since Christ died. That was only true since sin. But the gospel is not about that. The gospel is eternal. Grace is eternal. So the gospel is not simply we get to have life eternal with God. Would it be good news to you that you get to spend eternity with God if God was the kind of being Satan alleges he is? Now, if he was worse than Hitler, would you like to spend eternity with him under his rule? No. You see, the eternal good news is God is not like that. God is like Jesus revealed him to be. That news is eternal. Always was, always will be true. Yes. So really what you're saying is that God could do no less than die for us. I mean, that was his character. That was what was not required, but just was... It was required, and we're going to explore why it was required here in a second. He would die because he loves us. Of course, yes, yes not something that he came up with. It's just part of who he is. Correct. Yeah. Before the foundation of the world, it was according to the determined counsels of God that man should be created and endowed with power to do the divine will. The fall of man, with all its consequences, was not hidden from the omnipotent. Redemption was not an afterthought, a plan formulated after the fall of man, but an eternal purpose suffered to be wrought out for the blessing not only of this atom of a world, but for the good of all the worlds that God had created. Before him who ruled the, in the heavens, the mysteries of the past and the future are alike outspread. And God sees beyond the woe and darkness and the ruin the sin has wrought, the outworkings of his purposes of love and blessings, to the outworkings of his purposes of love and blessings. Through, through creation and redemption, through nature and through Christ, the glories of the divine character are revealed. Question, why is it important to reveal the glories of the divine character? It's been marred. It's been marred. Any other thoughts? To know me is to love me. To know me is to love me? Yeah. By the marvelous displays of his love in giving his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life, the character of God is revealed to the intelligences of the universe. Through Christ, our heavenly father is made known as the God of love. Or known as God, yes, the God of love. When man sinned, all heaven was filled with sorrow, for through yielding to temptation, man became the enemy of God, a partaker of the satanic nature. How were we created to operate? In In harmony. In in harmony with God is love. And now, through sin, man became partaker of the satanic nature. What would the difference be? What would the satanic nature be like? 
Selfishness. Yeah, selfishness. The image of God in which he had been created was marred and distorted. The character of man was out of harmony with the character of God. For through sin, man became carnal. The carnal heart is enmity against God and is not subject to the law of God, neither can be. What does that mean? What does it imply? If God's law is imposed, what is the result of, of this? Can't, 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 can't keep the rules. Yeah, punishment. If God's law is, as stated, above the law of love, what is the result of being out of harmony with it? Yes. Suffering, pain, death. What's the result of tying a plastic bag over your head? What's the result of lighting yourself on fire? If you, if you heard in the news recently, somebody did that again. Protester, poured gasoline on themselves, light themselves on fire. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, again. <laughs> again. Uh, that started the rebellion in Egypt, by the way, that, was, that led, it, led to the overthrow of Mubarak. Uh, a protester lit themselves on fire, and it led to that whole thing. Somebody did that again recently in the Middle East. If, if, so if, if, if disharmony with God's law is incompatible with life, then what would be needed to save mankind? Put us back in harmony. Ah, put us back in harmony. To, angels, to the angels, there seemed to be no way of escape for the transgressor. Why do you think they thought there was no way of escape? Do you think that the angels thought, well, you broke God's rule now, and he's an unforgiving, severe, cruel tyrant, and there is no way he'll, he'll let you off. No chance on earth. God's going to give you another chance. Uh, is that what the angels are thinking in heaven? No. Or do they know that God is love? They, 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 they had face-to-face communion with him. And so when they say angels, to them it seemed there was no way of escape. Why do you think that was? They, they just didn't think there was any way that we could be made well. There you go. They saw the depravity of our character. They saw how selfish we were, how fear-ridden we were, how, how willing we were to hurt another. And they thought, how can you possibly fix that? They ceased their songs of praise, and throughout the heavenly courts, there was mourning for the ruin sin had wrought. Out of harmony with the nature of God and yielding to the claims of his law, naught but, destru- but destruction was before the human race. Why was there only destruction now before the human race? For what we've been saying. I just want you to get your mind around that. Not because God is mad and wrathful, as we read earlier, and now he's coming, and if we don't get Christ down there really fast to, to protect us from his wrath, we're all in trouble. That's not it. Because we're out of harmony with the way life is built, and we can only die unless someone intervenes to save. Since the divine law is as changeless as the character of God, there could be no hope for man unless some way could be devised whereby his transgression might be pardoned, his nature renewed, and his spirit restored to reflect the image of God. Did you hear what was just said? What's necessary? A renewed nature, a spirit restored to be godly. Divine love had conceived such a plan. It was through Satan's misrepresentation of God's character that man was led to doubt the reality of his love and came to look upon God as his enemy. What, 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 how, how is humanity looking at God according to this? From Satan's allegations, we came to look at God as an enemy to be won over. Well, when I read those earlier quotes, did God sound in those quotes like he was your friend? Or he was angry, he was wrathful, justice required that he punish, he destroy, he's against you, he's the source of death, he must execute. I've got many, many more quotes I didn't read about where they describe God this way. And general Christianity is hiding and running from God. And they praise Jesus that he's there to take all that pain and suffering and stand between us and an angry, wrathful God. How many times have you heard Christians say, I don't want to stand in the judgment without my advocate there to stand between me and the Father? 
How many times you heard that? Why? If Jesus said, if you see me, you've seen the Father, the Father and I are one. If it's really true, why would you need Jesus between? If, when Jesus was washing Judas' feet, is Jesus God? Who stood between Jesus and Judas to protect Judas from Jesus? You see my point. This is God. You've seen me. You've seen the Father. When they spit on Jesus, brutalized him, crucified him, who was there to protect those people from Jesus? Who stood between to hold back Jesus' anger and wrath? No. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Yeah, this is what you see. If you see me, you've seen the Father. As Satan had done in heaven, so he did on earth, declared God's government unjust, the restrictions of his law unnecessary, and bade men, as he had angels, to throw aside the yoke of, uh, so, throw aside the yoke and let the dictates of his own nature be their only guide and law. He promised liberty, but as he himself is the servant of corruption, he brought the race into bondage, into sin, misery, and death. Think this through. So, throw aside your good judgment, throw aside good principles, just go out and live whatever your, your emotions and cravings and desires and lusts want to do. You, you sleep around, you smoke, you drink, you party, you do this kind of stuff. Will you end up with greater and greater freedom or greater and greater enslavement? What kind of enslavement will you experience? Not, let's say you don't go afoul of the governments of our, our, our land. Okay? Let's say you live in a land where it's legal to do all this corruption. Uh, so you're not going to get put in local jail. What kind of enslavement do you experience? What happens to your health if you smoke two packs a day? Will you be free to climb you know, up you know, one, of the, one of the parks and climb the mountain up one of the parks? Or you find that you can't breathe enough to do it? If you eat Big Macs and fries every day and put on 300 pounds, are you going to have freedom to move around? Are you going to be restricted in what you can do? You lose freedom. As you violate the laws, the laws react upon you, damaging, damaging, damaging. And the more damage we sustain, the less freedoms we have. Is this not true? We become enslaved. How about people who are enslaved in their addictions and they can't get free? Yes, because we make neurologic changes. We make changes in our neural net and we become uh, more and more vulnerable to following the passions and less capable of doing what we really want to do. And we destroy ourselves. We hurt other people and we cry and we grieve, but we don't get free. Why? Because the more we get into it, the, the more helpless we get. This is what, this is what happens when you... It's not an imp- imposition. It's not some authority coming and putting physical chains on you. You're chained by your own um, uh, habit patterns of life. He represented God as claiming all and giving nothing as requiring men's service for his own glory, but denying himself nothing for man's good. Think about the implication here. God makes us wait on him. How many constructs have you seen of God where that's exactly how it's represented? God's in heaven, he's waiting to do his bidding. He's represented exactly as, well, let's see, there's a vicar of Christ on earth. And he has all this pomp and circumstance and all this riches and everything else and everyone, and all the money flows that direction. In the work of creation, Christ was with God. He was one with God, equal with him, the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, the representative of the Father. Why is it important to realize Christ is fully God? What do we lose if we deny the Trinity and make Christ a lesser being? Which is, which is happening. It's happening in Christianity again. This whole attack against the divinity of Christ is, is rampant right now. I get emails all the time of people uh, attacking the idea of Christ's divinity, that he is, was a created being, the first of the created beings. It's a lie, guys. He's fully God. What do we lose 
If, if, if Christ is a created being, then what do we learn about God at the cross? Exactly. We learn. Exa- Here's the, let me read this lie to you again. He, Satan represented God as claiming all and giving nothing, as requiring men's service for his own glory, but denying nothing, himself nothing for man's good. That's the lie of Satan. And if Christ is not God, then what do we find at the cross? That God, in fact, is willing to sacrifice his creatures, but he's not willing to sacrifice himself. When you deny the divinity of Christ, you support Satan's lies about God. And anybody out there who is an anti-Trinitarian, I'm just going to tell you, you can't have the plan of salvation without God being fully manifest in Christ. In the work of creation, Christ, oh, I read that, okay, uh, says, uh, oh, so he alone, the creator of man, could be his savior. No angel of heaven could reveal the father to the sinner and win him back to his allegiance. You see, an angel couldn't do it. Created being couldn't do it. We needed to be God. But Christ could manifest the father's love. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. Christ is the daysman between the holy God and lost humanity, one who could lay hand upon both. None but Christ could redeem man from the curse of the law. He proposed to take upon himself the guilt and shame of sin, sin so offensive in the sight of God that it would necessitate separation from the Father. Pause. What does it mean, what I just read? He took upon himself the guilt and shame of sin. Did he take the legal guilt, the legal penalty? Is that what this is talking about? Or is it talking about the emotional guilt of sin he took upon himself? The the guilt and shame that comes from the condition of sinfulness itself. Well, the, the text, the context tells us he took guilt and shame upon himself. When he partook of our nature, the nature itself is filled with a self-loathing, self-distrust, self-conviction, self-inadequacy, shame, guilt, fear, insecurity, all these things. This is what he took upon himself. It's not a legal issue. He took a, a broken man, man's broken condition upon himself. Notice why, why he did it. Christ purposed to reach to the depths of man's degradation and woe and restore the repenting, believing soul to harmony with God. This is a restoration. No, it didn't say he, he, he proposed to reach the depths of man's degradation and take the full penalty to assuage the wrath and propitiate his anger, which we read earlier. No, that's not what this is saying. To restore the believing soul to harmony with God. Christ, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, offered himself as a sacrifice and substitute for the fallen sons of Adam Though in this offering, all heaven was involved in the infinite sacrifice. All heaven is involved. Not just Christ. It was, it was Christ. Remember, God was in the Son, reconciling the world to himself. But the Father so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that through his smitten heart, listen, through his smitten heart, a channel might be found for the outflowing of infinite love for fallen man. Notice, which way is it going here? Notice it says, earlier we read that he had to die and shed his blood so that an impact could be made on the Father to assuage and absorb the wrath and anger. This is saying just the opposite, that, that, that through his smitten heart, a channel might be found for the outflowing of infinite love for fallen man. Man had become so degraded by sin, his nature so perverted by evil, that it was impossible for him of himself to come into harmony with God, whose nature is purity and love. But Christ redeemed him from condemnation of the law and imparted divine power, and through man's cooperation, the sinner could be restored to his lost estate. This is restoration. This is renewal. The grace of Christ alone. Now we're, this is all about grace. We're talking about grace still. Okay? What is grace? 
His grace, this thing that Christ achieved by his death to earn from the Father, to assuage wrath, is that what it is? Or the grace of Christ alone could change the heart of stone to the heart of flesh. Who's got a heart of stone? An angry, wrathful God who must punish? Hmm? Hmm? As some are implying? Or is it mankind, human sinners, our hearts of stone? This is the grace of Christ alone could change the heart of stone to the heart of flesh, make it alive to God and transform the character so that a degraded child of sin might become a child of God and heir of the kingdom. Man had no power to justify the soul, to sanctify the heart. Moral disease could be healed only through the power of the great physician. Are you hearing a different message here? It's beautiful, isn't it? It's fantastic. It's real, guys. I'm going to tell you, it's real. This other idea with an imposed law construct of a God who must punish and inflict pain, and we must have our sins pardoned, it's all about denying you healing. That whole system is to get you to claim a legal pardon, get forgiveness stamped by your books in heaven, claim salvation because you fell on your knees and did the sinner's prayer. I've been saved because Jesus paid my penalty, but there's no transforming power experience in the heart. It's designed to keep you in a false state of security so you continue to live in this ongoing state of fear and insecurity, living for self while you claim eternal salvation. It's a grand deception. The, 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 The reality of what Jesus Christ offers us is real. It's a real transforming power where we can come to love God and others more than self. And then the last paragraph, the only hope for the fallen race was found in, be, found in becoming reconciled to God. Notice what's our only hope? Found in having our sins paid? Found in getting a legal pardon? No, found in becoming reconciled to God. Satan had so misrepresented God that man had no true conception of the divine character. Christ came to the world And in carrying out the plan of salvation, revealed the fact that God is love. Now, this is a phenomenal. We're talking about grace. Did you see the contrast in in what 100 years ago was being taught and what's being taught today? Did you see that? Is it it like black and white to you? What happened in the last 100 years to our church, to to Christianity? What's, What's going wrong? Are you tired of this world of sin? Are you longing for your heavenly home? Why have you asked the question, why has Christ not returned? Why are we still here? Well, Jesus said, when the gospel of the kingdom, what's the gospel? Of what kingdom? The kingdom of love. When the good news of the kingdom of love shall be preached to the entire world as a witness to all nations, then... The end will come. Have we taken what I just read to the world? Has Christianity taken that to the world? Or has Christianity taken that other thing? The thing that represents God as a being who must be appeased to the world? I'm going to tell you, our passion for this ministry is to be part of trying to light a fire up, up to get people spark a fire to get people. So I'm, I'm asking you guys, if you love this perspective, start a Bible study in your home. Invite friends that you know to your house and start a Bible study and start asking these questions. Start lighting a fire in their thinking processes. Ask questions to cause cognitive dissonance. Let's see if we can't wake up the slumbering giant. You know, the five foolish and the five wise virgins all slept. Those with the oil were asleep. I'd like to wake people up. Tuesday's lesson, second and third paragraph. Here's what it says. The word evidence or token means proof or plain indication of something. 
What does the persecution of Christians prove? It is certainly not evidence of God's judgment against his people. I agree with that completely. Let's keep reading. To the contrary, it is a pointer to the future judgment in which the people of God are vindicated and those who are persecuted, those who persecuted them, them receive the same kind of experience they inflicted on others. There is a message here for us. Violence begets violence, and those who use violence against others have a reason to fear for the future. God's judgment sets things right. Those who persecuted the, uh, the people of God will one day face the justice of God. What do you hear? What idea is being conveyed? That God will eventually inflict the exact same punishment that other people inflict on us. He's no better than them. Is that what you heard? But only what they deserve. Oh, but only as much as they deserve, right? So, yeah. Because mm-hmm. he's merciful. Mm. <laughs> Are they suggesting that God will use his power to inflict torment and torture, pain and suffering on his children to make them pay for their sins and calling it justice? Is that what they're suggesting? Or did I misread it? Jump to Wednesday's lesson. First and second paragraph in Wednesday's lesson says the following. Many people are uncomfortable with the language of these verses. They feel that everlasting destruction, vengeance, punishment, and the infliction of suffering are unworthy of a God of love, grace, and mercy. They ju- the, but just punishment and retribution is a frequent theme of Paul's. Paul is unequivocal. God's justice will one day be powerfully made manifest. And why not? Any good government in today's world must at some point exercise force to, in order to restrain evil. Though force is not always violent, as when you are stopped for a traffic violation or audited for your taxes, in some cases, especially when the criminals are using violence themselves, they must be answered with violence. Good governments, <clears throat> excuse me, good governments provide a necessary restraint that we can all live to, that we can all live together in peace many times outright evil will not give way voluntarily and the greater the power and brutality of evil the greater the force often needed to undo that evil <laughs> so i heard a few sighs <laughs> and some cries maybe um, what what do you hear what god do you hear pictured here Satanic. i think that's well said russell and I'm going to show you the evidence for it in a minute. But this is the picture, Satan's picture of God that's being presented here. I, I, will, I will not sugarcoat it any longer. This is not the God that we just read about in the other article. This is not the God you see in Jesus Christ. This is not a God of love, mercy, and grace. They want to call it justice. It's a lie. This is, this is, this is the lie we meant, uh, that we read about earlier, that God must use his power to torture his creatures. Why do they see it this way? Well, before I ask why, what are the problems in what we just read in these, two, in these two sections, and what scripture, science, and experience evidence can you cite to support the problems you see? In other words, that they're, they're, these, these things are wrong. What, what evidences do you have that there's problems in the way they, they describe it? Yes? One is, uh, Christ tells us, my kingdom is not of this world. And it says, any good government in today's world. How, I don't see how you can parallel those two. Well said. First thing I have, let me build on what she said. Let me build on what she said. I said, my kingdom is not of this world, John 18, 36. Paul said, for the wisdom of the world is foolishness in God's sight. The worldly ways, the way the world does it, foolishness. Um, my thoughts are not your thoughts. 
Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. And now notice the next verses as it describes what's happening here. As the rain and the snow come, up, come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater. What is just described functionally in that verse? Love. The law of love. The law of beneficence. The law of giving. My ways. I mean, he tells you, my ways aren't your ways. My ways are higher than your ways. My ways are the law of love, giving freely, which brings life to everything. That's my way. Okay, that's my way. Earthly government. So we have my kingdom is not of this world. Earthly ways are foolish ways. God's ways are higher than ours. God's ways are the ways of love. And we have in the scripture, in all the symbolic representations of earthly governments, the earthly governments are always symbolized by ferocious beasts that tear and, and ravage. But Jesus is a lamb, a gentle lamb. It's his government, the gentle, loving government. Earthly governments rule exactly as the lesson states. By force, might, infliction, arbitrary use of imposed punishments and law. God's law is the law of love, which is the design protocol for life. Punishment is inherent in the sin, not inflicted by God. The lesson has, I'm going to make it very clear. The lesson has taken the foolishness of worldly governments and applied it to God's government. Alleging God's government operates like sinful man's government and they call it justice. And it's a lie. God's government does not operate that way. Yes, over here. Um, Zechariah 7, 8 through 10. And the word of the Lord came again to Zechariah. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor. In your hearts, do not think evil of each other. So what is true justice? True justice is mercy and compassion. There you go. See, justice, just, doing what's just, doing what's right. Did you know in the Greek, the word for justice is the same word as righteousness? See, righteousness, doing the right thing, doing the just thing, righteous, justice. The problem in our legal justice system in English, we have problems that don't exist in other languages of the world. But in English, we have problems because our English language, legal justice system is based on the Latin. And the Latin, you know, justice, um, uh, and and our, all, if you ever hear all the legal terms you get, it's all this Latin stuff. So we hear legal overtones to, to things in Scripture that are, that are not legal at all. Doing the simple justice. How about justification, for instance? It, it's often presented as, as legal, right? But justification means to justify. It means to justify. That's what it means. And, and in your word processor on your computer, have you ever justified the margins? Did that mean you legally pardoned them? No, to justify the margins means you take those things that are all ragged and out of harmony and you straighten them out. You put them straight. You put them in harmony. Take what's out of order and you put it in order. Justification is the process of God taking broken, sinful, human, selfish hearts and putting them in order with his, putting them in harmony with his, setting us right with him by recreating us within. That's justification, a real healing, transforming process. So we have evidences from scripture that this construct of comparing human governments and how they run to God's government is one of the grossest things you can do to God's government. Yes. Another thought that I have is just the way that Jesus treated his enemies. He said, you know, he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And he washed Judas's feet. And, um, and then he tells us that how we should treat our enemies. And then he says that God is sending the sunshine and the rain upon the evil and the good. You know, I mean, it's just obvious that God is not out there trying to hurt people who are against him. Yeah. 
great, this is, this is evidence. These, these things are not just claims, how Jesus lived his life. Remember at the cross, who, he's not just a human being like the two thieves. This is fully God. He ha- he's walked on water. He performed miracles. I mean, he has the, if, if I, he told Pilate, if I wanted to, I could call, and my father would send legions of angels. Twelve legions of angels if I wanted to. What are we learning here? How does he use power? John chapter 13, it says, all power was given unto Christ. And what did he do next? He got up, got a bowl of water, and washed a bunch of dirty feet. So how does God use power? Just the opposite of what we read in that article where Satan alleged God would not do anything for others but demanded others serve and wait on him. We find just the opposite. Christ is the, is the suffering servant. He's using his power to bless, to not inflict pain. Think about it, guys. I want you to imagine for a moment that your drug in front of this group, not this group, let's say a group of, let's make it much more realistic. You're captured by some Taliban. And you're being mocked, beat, spit upon, um, tortured, whipped, kicked around. And they're going to get a video camera out and they're going to crucify you in front of the world. And you just happen to have supernatural powers. You just happen to have supernatural abilities. While they're doing this to you, if you had, oh, you know, some of the powers of the superheroes in our comic books, or the old I Dream of Genie, or Bewitched, or some of these, if you had these supernatural powers, would they be in trouble from you? Would they be, would, 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 I mean, whether, or would they be safe from you? Christ had omnipotent power at his disposal. What does it say to you about God that in the face of his brutalization, he didn't even have a thought in his mind? See, he didn't have to twinkle his nose or blink his eyes. He just had to think it, be gone. And he would have wiped them out with a thought. Didn't even have a thought to hurt them. It's, it's profound. But not if, God, not if Jesus isn't God. It goes back to the whole Trinity thing. If you undermine the divinity of Christ, you destroy the lesson. This is what's so profound. What other evidence do we have? What about the law of liberty? This is a testable law. Um, and if you violate freedom, imagine a, a young couple dating, and, the, and after a few weeks of dating, uh, the young man pulls out a gun, puts it to the girl's head, and says, you better love me or I'm going to kill you. Does she love him more? What happens to love in that environment? How about a marriage of 20 years? And during the marriage, um, one of the partners is constantly controlling the other, telling them where they can go, what foods they can eat, what clothes they can watch, how much money they're allowed to spend, who they're allowed to hang out with, when they can use the phone, when they can't use the phone. One spouse is constantly doing this to the other. What's going to happen to love in that marriage? Do you have any doubt at all what will happen? When you violate freedom, love is always destroyed over time. What happens to the desire in the heart? To get closer or to get away? To get away. A desire, a, a desire to rebel is built into the heart. But if you stay voluntarily, then over the course of time, you lose your ability to think and reason. You become a, a shadow, an empty shell of a person who can't think for themselves, looking for someone else to do your thinking for you. This is testable. If you don't believe me in your relationships, try it out. Try it out on your spouse. Start taking their freedoms away and watch what happens. I promise you, love won't grow. You can turn it the other way, though. If you've been in a relationship where this kind of stress is happening, start promoting the freedom. Start giving freedom and, and really promoting the individuality of your partner. Watch them be drawn to you. Now, I tell you this is testable because it, it, uh, it, as, a, as a testable law, it's evidence-based. And then we find scripture to support it. Zechariah 4.6, not by power, not by might, nor by power, but by the Spirit, 
says the Lord. And the spirit is the spirit of love and truth. This is how he works. Truth presented in love, leaving people free. This is God's method. But what would happen if somebody, if God says, look, all all I want is your love. I I love you so much. I sent my son. But if you don't love him back, I will burn you in hell. You try that on your spouse. Hey, I love you so much. I, I've done, I bought you flowers. I, I, I've taken you on vacations. I, I buy you new clothes. I, 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 I give you back rubs. I mean, I love you. So, but if you ever stop loving me, I'm going to sneak in here while you're sleeping, pour gas on you and light you on fire. Will you love him more? What happens to love if you believe, if you believe it's true? Well, but, but, but your spouse can only burn you for, you know, how long are you going to live in that situation? Five minutes maybe and you're dead? God can do it for, for days and, and eons of time. We should love him more then, right? It's a lie. Freedoms violated always destroy love. God will not, God is not the source of death. You see, this lie is not only keeps us from experiencing the healing that I mentioned earlier, it keeps us afraid of God. And instead of fearing the disease of sin in our hearts is destroying us, we fear God who is the one who wants to heal us and has got the remedy for us. And so we run and hide from him rather than going to him. And, and, we, and we devise these theories that say, hey, when the Father looks at us, he doesn't see me. He sees Jesus standing between me and the Father. So he can't look at my wickedness. It's like going to the doctor sick and saying to the doctor, hey, don't look at me because I'm my healthy brother. But David prayed. What did David pray? Search me and see the wicked way in me. Creating me a clean heart, O God, renew a right spirit within me. We should be praying, God, find all the defects because I know when you do, you'll fix them. Thank you. I just wanted to mention that God used power on earth. Jesus used power, but always for the good. He healed the people. And when he was threatened, he just departed. He withdrew. Like we often say, God's wrath is withdrawing. And when they wanted to stone him and push him off the cliff, he left. Exactly right. He did not use force to protect himself or in selfish ways at all. Never used power in that way. God will not do it. This representation is a lie. Even Gandhi, who wasn't a Christian, understood this. Remember what he said? An eye for an eye and the entire world would go blind. Isn't it true? I mean, if we really did an eye for an eye, we would have no eyes. We'd all be blind. It's not God's way. Jesus taught to turn the other cheek, to forgive freely, to not seek vengeance. But wait, you know the antagonist will say, the scriptures say, see, you all know this, you've, 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 you've probably had this discussion and somebody says, but the Bible says vengeance is mine. What do you do with that? Well, let me tell you what you do. Write these verses down. Write down Isaiah 1, 24 and 25. And Isaiah 61, 1 through 3. Let me read to you these, these verses. Get your idea around this idea of vengeance. Here's vengeance. Isaiah 1. Therefore the Lord, the the Lord Almighty, the Mighty One of Israel declares, Ah, I will get relief on my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities. What did he say he's going to do? He's going to heal you. He's going to destroy sickness. He's going to destroy sin in you. Whoa. How about this one? The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me, by the way, um, this is what Jesus read in the synagogue about himself. Okay. This is the, the, if you remember when he stood up and took the scroll and read, this is referring to Jesus. 
The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the broken heart, to proclaim freedom to the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Now, as you put that together, what do you hear? The vengeance of the Lord is. Healing. He takes vengeance by turning his enemies into his friends, by recruiting Satan's captives back to God's side, by attacking with a severe vengeance sin, not the sinner. He attacks fear in your heart. He attacks, he attacks fear with an outpouring of love. He attacks lies with an abundance of truth. He attacks selfishness with self-sacrifice. Yes, he is attacking the defects and sin in your heart, but he's not attacking you. He's trying to free you. This is the vengeance of the Lord. Yes, way in the back. Also, vengeance can be truth revealed. So vengeance can also be whenever the full universe comes to the awareness about Satan's lies and the true character of God. So he is vindicated by the realization of what he really is. Yeah, but that vengeance isn't the Lord taking vengeance. The vengeance you're describing is the vengeance that sin seeks out on the sinner. The unhealed sin takes vengeance upon the sinner. And so, yes, vengeance can come from more than one source. I think of it more as vindication then. But see, that's not vengeance. Vindication is not vengeance. Yes, there is a vindication too. Absolutely. And you're right. That, that God will be vindicated in that state. But God won't be taking vengeance upon them. Yes. But see, this is taught. I, I hear... Oh, Russell, go ahead. Well, we can take lessons from a, you know, a, a military model. It, it's one thing to kill a high-ranking officer of your enemy, but if you recruit that officer to your side, then that makes your warfare that much more powerful. This is what God is trying to do. He's trying to recruit Satan's army to, to his side. Exactly. Exactly. And, and again... His vengeance is very much like a doctor's vengeance against disease. Doctors are constantly angry and wrathful at infection, at disease, but they're not angry and wrathful at patients. You see? They want to heal patients. They want to destroy disease. Yes? Then you also have to consider those who will not accept and, and turn and be healed. What does God do to them? What does the doctor do to the patient who refuses healing? He just... He lets them go. He gives them freedom. And what is the God's wrath according to Scripture all the way through? Jesus, who experienced, quote, the wrath of God on the cross, experienced for what from his Father? My God, my God, why have you, why have you let me go? Why have you let me go? Romans chapter 1, verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed against all wickedness and godless of, godlessness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And then Paul tells you, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, they didn't think it worthwhile to retain the true knowledge of God, but preferred Idol images, pagan constructs of God is what they preferred, which is what we were talking about earlier. And because they preferred that construct of God, therefore, God gave them up, verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up, verse 26. Therefore, God gave them up, verse 28. God's wrath is setting you free to let you experience your true choices. Yes, let the disease run its course. I cannot intervene with you. In fact, maybe we should jump down a little farther. Boy, had several things to... 
Okay, here, here we go. I'm going to jump down here just a little farther. Think about this quote. This is out of a book called Greek Controversy, um, page 541. The principles of kindness, mercy, and love taught and exemplified by our Savior are a transcript of the will and character of God. That kind of sounds like what we said earlier, doesn't it? It's like the, the good things that Jesus taught reveal God's character. That's what it's saying. Um, God declared that he taught nothing except that which he had received from the Father. Excuse me, Christ declared that. The principles of the divine government are in perfect harmony with the Savior's, Savior's precepts, love your enemies. Love your enemies. Wait a minute, didn't we just read earlier that he's going to have punish his enemies? Wait, but that's not his precepts. That's earthly governments that punish their enemies. God loves his enemies. What kind of law is being described here? The law of love, yeah. God executes justice upon the wicked for the good of the universe and even for the good of those who, upon whom his judgments are visited. Think this through. He, he would make them happy if he could do so in accordance with the laws of his government and the justice of his character. Why can't he make them happy? Can you make someone happy and healthy who smokes two packs of cigarettes a day? Or that, like the person who lights themselves on fire, can you, can, you, can you make them healthy and happy if they do that to themselves? No, it violates, see, those things violate the laws upon which life is built to operate. And when you insist on doing that, you can't be made happy against your will to destroy yourself. He surrounds them with tokens of his love. He grants them a knowledge of his law and, and follows them with the offers of his mercy. But they despise his love, make void his law, and reject his mercy. While constantly receiving his gifts, they dishonor the giver. They hate God because they know that he abhors their sins. The Lord bears long with the perversity, with their perversity, but the decisive hour will come at last when their destiny will be decided. Who do you think decides their destiny? Hmm. Well, it'll, it'll come later in the quote. See what you think. Will he then chain these rebels to his side? Will he force them to do his will? See, God doesn't use force. He doesn't use that. It's by freedom. You know, not by might nor by power, we read in the scripture. So he's not going to force. Those who have chosen Satan as their leader and have been controlled by his power are not prepared to enter the presence of God. Pride, dissension, de- pride, deception, licentiousness, cruelty have become fixed in their characters. Why are they not prepared to enter? Because God doesn't want them there? Because they haven't had pardon stamped by their book in, in, in heaven? Or because there's something defective in them that makes that place intolerable for them to be? Can they enter heaven and dwell forever with those whom they despised and hated on earth? Truth will never be agreeable to a liar. Meekness will not satisfy, uh, satisfy self-esteem and pride. Purity is not acceptable to the corrupt. Disinterested love not, does not appear attractive to the selfish. What source of enjoyment could heaven offer to those who are wholly absorbed in earthly and selfish interests? You seeing the point here? Why, why are they not fitted? They would hate the place. Could those who live their lives, been, could those whose lives have been spent in rebellion against God be suddenly transported to heaven to witness the high and holy state of perfection that ever exists there? Every soul filled with love, every countenance beaming with joy, enrapturing music, melodious strains rising in honor of God and the Lamb, and ceaseless streams of light flowing from the redeemed in the face of him who sitteth upon the throne. Could they endure the glory of God and the Lamb? No, no. Years of probation were granted them that they might form characters for heaven. But they have never trained the mind to love purity. They have never learned the language of heaven. And now it is too late. 
A life of rebellion against God has unfitted them for heaven. Its purity, holiness, and peace would be tortured to them. The glory of God would be a consuming fire. Talk about the eternal consuming fire, okay? Um, they would long to flee from that holy place. They would welcome destruction that they might be hidden from him uh, who died to redeem them. You know, the, the scripture text, when he comes, they run and hide, begging for the mountains and rocks to fall and to hide them from the face. They would welcome destruction. The destiny of the wicked is fixed by their own choice. Their exclusion from heaven is voluntary with themselves. It's what they want. And just and merciful on the part of God. Like the waters of the flood, the fires of the great day declare God's verdict that the wicked are incurable. Incurable. You see, do you see anything in here of an angry God? You see anything of a wrathful God? You see anything of God here who wants them to suffer and wants to punish them? But it's unavoidable. It's just as much as the sick patient who drinks two bottles of whiskey a day and is in liver failure, and, 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 and it's your son and you're the doctor. You would do anything to save him, but they won't stop drinking. You just cry as they die. What can you do? And you see, God has to conduct himself in such a way that, that in the day that this transpires, and, and, and rather than what we read earlier from, from that other construct where I've heard it talked about, that on the day we, the, the righteous will be standing on the walls of New Jerusalem, the wicked will be outside, fire comes down from God, and we are loving it because they are going to be suffering now and get their just rewards. We read in the lesson earlier, this is one construct. No. What, what, what the real construct is, God has to handle it in such a way that when that day happens, you can walk up to Jesus and put your arm around him and say, it's all right. There's nothing more you could have done. See, he has to handle it in a way that the entire universe knows that every being lost, God could do no more for them. And he would have if he could have. That's the truth. That's the message about, that we see revealed in Jesus Christ in Scripture. Any closing comments or questions? Yes. But in the lesson, it actually says that, you know, we can take comfort in the fact that they're going to receive theirs in the end. And it seems to me that that actually fosters in us the same hatred and the same unforgiving spirit that they are exhibiting in their persecution. Exactly. Exactly. And it makes us harden our hearts. It doesn't bring us tender hearts. It doesn't bring us compassionate hearts. Imagine if doctors actually looked forward to the day their patients would suffer and die. Would you want to go to that doctor? I mean, think it through. It's a terrible picture. Who would want to go to a God who's looking forward to the day? Who would want to have as a neighbor? Think about who you want. Have you listed your five? The five people you want as your neighbors in heaven. Who would want a neighbor in heaven who's looking forward to watching people suffer and die? Our heart should break. Our heart should break. Yes. This may be my own concept, but I feel like the uh, tears of those who do enter heaven will not be wiped away until the time comes when we see that God was just in destroying the world. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. I, I believe you. Let's close our prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are not like your enemies have made you out to be. That you are exactly as Jesus revealed you to be, a God of love. We thank you that you run your universe on the principles of beneficence and giving. That you have designed life to operate in harmony with your nature. We realize that we were born in a condition, not of our fault, that was 
out of harmony with your nature. And Christ came to, to reconcile us, to rebuild us, to, to transform us, to heal us, to restore us. We open our hearts and we pray for the real, literal experience of being renewed in likeness of you. May we, may we experience your peace, your joy, your love. May we have uh, minds that are, uh, are growing and expanding in the knowledge of your kingdom. And may we be representatives of you on this earth to share this message with so many around us that are in darkness, that don't know that the world can be lighted and you can come. We pray in your holy name. Amen.